Yo-ho, I'm Damien Roos. Today, how much the coffee stop affects a training ride? Can you fix ripped lycra, foam rollers, and mips? You got a question about cycling? I got you covered. But if I can't find the answer, it doesn't exist. This is your cycling questions answered. If you're new to the show, here's the format. You ask a cycling question, I answer. It's as simple as that. Now, the first question, how much does stopping for a coffee affect my training ride? The coffee stop, it's one of the most inescapable traditions in cycling, as much as shaving your legs and keeping the shorts black. But have you ever thought about how much it actually affects your training ride? One of the effects of stopping mid-ride are pretty obvious. You get stiff muscles. We've all felt it. You're effectively warming down. Badly. In a space where you aren't moving around, you aren't getting rid of any waste that is built up during exercise, perhaps even causing blood to pool in the legs. As soon as you jump back on the bike, it'll take at least 20 minutes before you are riding and training effectively again. This could also have something to do with the metabolic imbalances you have just caused, where the body is trying to promote carbohydrate storage to aid recovery. When you stop riding, your body tries to restore some balance, enhancing glycogen synthesis or the process of resynthesizing carbs and storing them back into the muscle. This process occurs for around two hours after riding. Stopping mid-ride causes a metabolic imbalance where the body is trying to restore glycogen, but that same glycogen is needed to start the next effort the moment you jump back on the bike. What's more, this confusion also has the effect of fat burning as the body needs to metabolize more carbs to overcome this problem. Another thing to think about is that by stopping and eating, you give your body a chance to reboot, meaning that you can sustain a higher intensity during a ride with a stop than one without. This is fine for a weekend warrior type situation, but can lead to problems if you try to ride continuously at that intensity at a later date, like in a race or a Grand Fondo. So something to remember. In the end, though, it's up to you. In some places, you might soon find yourself riding alone most of the time if you even mention ditching the coffee stop. For many, it's sacred, holy, and it's not to be messed with. Can you stitch up lycra? It's happened to all of us. It might be at high speed. You might be messing around trying to wheelie, or you might not have seen that granny that stepped out in front of you, and you've crashed and ripped your lycra. You've hit the deck. Everyone's experience is different, but I'm sure you'll agree that one of the most annoying outcomes of a crash, providing you haven't broken your collarbone, is ripping expensive, maybe new, maybe just even sentimental cycling kit. So what can you do about it? If you buy your kit at Rafa or ASOS, you can still get a replacement for around half the price or more. In fact, more and more brands are doing this, but most don't offer this possibility. Even still, you have to spend half of what you paid in the first place. So it's not a bad idea to think about it. One solution I've seen knocking around online is the Iron Men Kit by Magnet. It costs around 10 USD and is advertised to provide strong, flexible, permanent repairs for neoprene, orthopedic supports, and most importantly for us cyclists, Lycra. Looking at the reviews online, people seem to swear by them. All you need is to cut off a patch that covers the hole, place on the heat shield, they give you and apply some medium heat in 10 second intervals with an iron. Simple, huh? Talking from personal experience though, I find that a small piece of the same type of fabric from another pair of shorts or similar can be taken to any decent seamstress, tailor, or someone that knows how to use a sewing machine 
uh, someone I know had a crash at a roundabout and ripped a brand new pair of bibs. And two years later, they're still their go-to winter tights. So if you have anything lying around that fits the criteria, I definitely look into having it repaired, even if it's only for the trainer or a quick spin with nobody else. Foam rollers. When it comes to myofascial release, less technically known as trying to help those sore legs feel better, nothing beats the expert hands of a trained massage therapist, but not all of us have the time or money to pay one to visit them on a regular basis. But there is an option that is recommended the world over by physios, osteopaths, and anyone who knows anything about exercise recovery and injury. Foam rollers are a cheap and simple way to help you remove tension in the muscles after exercise. They don't tuck up they don't take up much space either. A word of warning though, just as sports massage isn't performed with candles and ambient music, foam rollers hurt just as much. The good news is that the more you can do it, the less your muscles will feel battered to death. So no pain, no gain. But remember, go to your happy place and hot nervy pain is not good pain. I would recommend that if you're going to do it, you do it on a regular basis as part of a routine. Because for cyclists, this routine should consist of massaging all the leg muscles in each session. It needs to be done slowly, working through the whole muscle, a bit like pushing the air out of an inner tube. If rolling around on the swimming float sounds silly to you, there have been studies done that suggest less painful muscles after intense exercise using a roller, aiding performance in subsequent training sessions. Opinions are definitely divided, but I say that if they aid your recovery or you just feel good after a long ride, then they seem to be a great option to try. But I would recommend seeing it as just one tool in an arsenal that includes stretching, hydration, functional strength training, and professional massage when possible. Use the foam roller to help you provide feedback to identify what's tight, sore, or maybe the beginning of an injury, but pay close attention to the pressure you're applying to ensure you're not doing more harm than good. And a quick search on Google will show you loads of exercise that you can try out after a ride. Are MIPS helmets worth the extra cash? You've no doubt heard by now the MIPS system, M-I-P-S system in helmets. It's been around for a while. And just like anything that offers us a little bit of extra safety, it seems like an interesting enough idea. If any of you rock a Giro or a Bell helmet, it's likely that you're a MIPS user. So what is the science behind it? According to its creators, when a MIPS-equipped helmet is subjected to an angled impact, a low friction layer that looks much like a thin of yellow plastic allows the helmet to slide relative to the head. A helmet that incorporates MIPS technology is said to help absorb the rotational force that typically is experienced in a crash and that claims MIPS can be huge in terms of the amount of damage that you can do to your head in the event of a crash. Opinions on the technology are extremely polarized, however. MIPS technology can set you back between $20 to $50 more than the helmet without it, and it can even be found on kids' helmets. The big issue is that there is no real-world data showing whether or not MIPS technology has any real effect on safety. The truth is that helmet technology has come a long way since the leather hairnet helmets of old, and most helmets nowadays incorporate tried and tested technology that has to pass rigorous production testing. Whether MIPS helps or not in an impact, there are a few things that you can do to make sure you're getting what you need. A helmet has to fit well, making sure that there is nothing that can snag on anything in the event of a crash, making sure that the exterior of the helmet slides well on the pavement, buying one from a reputable brand, abiding to whatever standards exist in the country you bought it from is the key here. 
a quick search on YouTube for knockoff helmets will persuade you otherwise. The skeptic in me wants to say that it's all marketing crap, but I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for some of the definitive testing results when the time comes to buy a new helmet. I only have one brain and I'm not in a hurry to look for a replacement. How can you successfully group ride with so many differences in level? Some clubs are more numerous than others in size. Therefore, different levels, people coming back from injury, newbies, racers, just generally slow riders, unless there is a no drop ethos of the ride, this can cause problems on many levels. Some people need to get home at a certain time. Others need want continuous training without stopping. Some can't keep up with the pace and it turns cycling into a nightmare. Some are on a rest day. It just goes on and on. How is it possible to organize consistent group rides where everyone is kept happy and can get what they need out of a ride? It's hard to group together 10 or 20 riders who are at a similar level, but it is possible to keep them all together as long as everyone knows how the ride works. What can be done is to make a group ride compatible with most levels. Stronger riders might need to make a sacrifice in pace at some points of the ride. On climbs, there is no reason to go slow. Route selection is also essential, but it also may be possible to form groups depending on the level. Solutions without making the ride too easy. First of all, everyone should be clear on the route. Using the Strava event tooling clubs is a great idea. On the flats, keep the pace steady with the stronger riders taking turns at the front so to maximize their training effort in needed. Not too high, but not too slow. When it comes to climbs, the simplest idea is to ride the climb at the pace you want. If you are the strongest, you get to the top, you go back down and ride up again, just past the slowest. That way, everyone gets to the top without having to stop. If it's a short, steep climb, make sure on the descent you keep pedaling, but let everybody get back on. As for distance, knowing the roads where you ride is essential. Using tools like Strava, Route Creator, you can create two routes that have a similar profile, but that have a coffee stop in the same place. It can be difficult to time this, however. If there is a stop mid-ride, then this could be a point where pace becomes less of an issue and two groups can be formed on the return home, one faster and one slower. The reverse can also be the case. One group could start the ride 15-30 minutes before the others, going at an easy pace until a stop is reached. Meanwhile, the faster group catches up with the meeting point. The return leg can be done the same way or at an easier pace for everyone. The big issue though is as follows. If you don't have the fitness for a group ride that incorporates a wide variety of levels, it may be a better idea to think about other options. The same goes for a strong rider who wants to go full gas on a Saturday or Sunday. It's important to find a balance. When do we need to be careful using Zwift or similar? Ergo, used to be boring. For those living in countries where conditions are often too poor to ride, Zwift has pushed through the indoor training market as a fun way to get in training without having to risk your neck in bad weather. Allowing you to focus on a visual goal and to see your effort in real time, it makes it much easier and appealable to jump on the trainer. Used incorrectly, however, there are a number of ways it can have a detrimental effect on your progress. Where do we need to be careful when incorporating Zwift into a training plan? A couple of weekly high-intensity sessions are great, but be careful when you're using Zwift as a principal means of training. Overtraining means more time spent off the bike than recovering. If you are training to power, be careful with the heat. It can affect your FTP massively and will give inaccurate data Bad calibration can also be a big issue here. 
By keeping yourself cool and hydrated, you will be able to produce more wattage for a given heart rate and thus increasing your overall absolute fitness. Overheating can easily cause a reduction in indoor power by 20 or 30 watts alone. So it's critical that you have a large fan blowing during your workout. And if you can do it in a cool room, that will make a difference as well. If your outdoor FTP is 250 watts and your indoor is 230 watts, but you use your outdoor FTP when inside, then you're going to be training much too intensely for winter. This would likely result in failing to hit your intervals at the prescribed wattage. Not only is this a real bummer, but it could cause you to mess up your whole periodization plan for the year and either peak too early and or lose form too early as well. You're likely to sweat much more than out on the road. Make sure you're replacing those fluids more often than outside. Don't forget to warm up and cool down outside on a technical ride. It's normal to go easy for a few kilometers before the real training begins. Try to emulate that online. It's easy to ride online and compete against others, but with a poor training setup or incorrect power or weight data, you might be fooling yourself into thinking you're faster than you actually are. It's easy to go fast on Zwift. Using an indoor trainer with a smart setup can be a hugely beneficial and enjoyable, but just like riding and training outside, there are certain measures you need to take into account. Can I ride road on a cross bike? Attractive idea, being able to merge the two disciplines and get the best of both worlds. Many people would think that cross can do road, but not vice versa. To what extent would riding or racing on a cross bike hold you back on the road? It might be because you want to do both, but can't afford it. Lack of space for more than one bike, or you dedicate most of your time to the cross bike, but you like to train on the road from time to time. The big issues we face with this idea are position. Finding the right position for both disciplines would involve changing out stems, gear ratios, on a CX bike, you are almost sure to be undergeared for most terrain. Handling, CX bikes are said to be much more sluggish on the road, a possibly dangerous issue when group riding. Weight, CX bikes are bound to be heavier and slower. Aerodynamics, big tire clearance and more upright position on a CX. What can you do if you decide to run a CX bike on the road? Find a middle ground RE position, nothing too relaxed, but nothing too aggressive either. For a race, traditional CX gearing won't cut it, and in a strong group ride, you will be limited too. The highest gear on most CX bikes is 46.11. Cornering and quick movements are what sets a road bike apart. With a CX bike, you've got to be aware that this bike is going to be much more sluggish in those situations, and the weight issue becomes less of a problem depending on how much you spend. A good set of dedicated lightweight road wheels can help this even more. A modern CX bike with a good set of road wheels and tires should have no problem substituting a road bike when it comes to a more relaxed road riding. But when it comes to harder group sessions or races, too many changes may need to be made to make the bike an effective race bike. Flying with your bike. Is it worth it? When you live in an area where rain and bad weather seem to be the case most of the time, there are a great number of places you can go and train, be it self-organized or with a company. Mallorca is a destination that everyone knows, though through experience or not. The first and obvious option is to fly with your bike. This may seem unattractive to many with the fear of something happening to the bike or delays. What are your options in this case? cardboard box advantages you can ditch the box once you arrive it can be easily obtained from any local bike shop disadvantages less protective repurchase and set up for each trip bike bag advantages inexpensive you can stow this away once you arrive easy to carry and extra for your return disadvantages 
Little protection against negligent handling, not universally accepted by airlines, shipping, transportation companies. Hard bike case advantages, provides the most protection, reusable, some have wheels, disadvantages, expensive, extra luggage for the duration of your trip. Some can be very heavy and cumbersome. There's some anecdotal evidence that the full service carriers like British Airways are more reliable than the low cost carriers. At the other extreme, a short flight on a small plane and a large number of bikes is the perfect storm. As an example, here's a story of somebody that in summer they went to Etape de Tour on EasyJet from Bristol and the plane was full of cyclists and there was almost a riot when they taxied off the takeoff, leaving a trolley load of bikes standing on the tarmac. So do some careful research before booking your flight. Check the various airlines, read the small print. Be aware that every airline has different regulations. Sometimes the same airline has different rules for different locations or for charter flights or scheduled flights, or even on outbound and inbound flights between the same two points and the rules change frequently. Many airports seem to impose their own rules or at least have different interpretations of the airline regulations. So once you've picked your airline and your airport, it goes without saying that good insurance is essential, something that covers the full value of your bike if it's lost. Just be sure to check out the small print. Other options, if you don't want to take your bike, area depending, the option to rent a bike is becoming much more popular. There are some great rental deals depending on your destination with companies offering top of the line bikes for rent. Many bike shops offer this service with the guarantees of a fully functional, well-maintained bike. It also offers the chance to try different bikes, frames, group sets, etc. Again, area depending, there are companies that will take your bike in a van from point A to point B with prices comparable to those of the airlines with more or less guarantee of your bike arriving on time and in good condition. One option is offered by some UK tour companies, a van to carry bikes to your final destination while you take the plane stress-free. This service might cost 70 to 100 pounds for the return trip, but that's comparable with airline charges and there is much less chance of your bike arriving late. Next steps, the easiest choice in terms of peace of mind is flying with a cardboard box. It's cheap, relatively secure, and can be disposed of pretty easily. The main issue is possibly the return leg of the journey. Depending on where you travel, bike rental is a viable option. And if you're traveling a short distance or within the continent, companies can offer great delivery services with your bike with a guarantee that it will arrive safe and sound.